Welcome to Always On Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. I'm Rosemary Maffey. And I'm Tom Lyman. We're coming to you from the Archdiocese of Boston. We hope to bring you some joy and some encouragement during this challenging time. We'll do that today and every week by taking a look at the life of a saint who evangelized in a challenging time or uh, experienced his or her call to evangelize in such a time as well as taking the time to speak to someone here in our Archdiocese who is living out that call to evangelize right now. How's it going, Tom? Pretty good, Rosemary. How about you? Good. So a lot of exciting things have happened in our own ministry just since the last episode of our podcast. They sure have. It was so cool to bring our workshops and make them virtual. So just last week and over the weekend, we did a debut of a virtual edition of our Forming Disciples and Mission Workshop and our Forming Leaders for Mission Workshop. And how fun was it to have people participate in that, not only from our archdiocese, but from other states and even from Canada? It really was extraordinary to think that something that is usually only experienced right here within an hour of Boston, you know, we had people signing on from Oregon, from Michigan, and like you said, Canada. Uh, the limits are really, there really are no limits as far as who we reach with our new format now. So if any of you want to check that out, I encourage you to go to disciplesandmission.com slash workshops and sign up for one of our future virtual workshops. But that's not all that's happened since last week, Tom. It was so awesome to talk to pastors and lay leaders from parishes around our archdiocese to hear about the wonderful ways that they've been evangelizing during this time. Tell us about the webinars we've been a part of. That's right. We had our second webinar on parish best practices in virtual evangelization. And it really was uh, outstanding to hear from so many different parishes and uh, priests and staff about some of the great things they're doing, even in this time uh, of the pandemic. So we encourage everyone to take a look online uh, at bostoncatholic.org slash webinars, and you can listen in. Yeah, it was very encouraging and a great opportunity to share best practices as a lot of people tuned in to think about how they might then want to live out the mission. But we know that you all have some great ideas too, so we'd love to hear about it. I encourage you to Go on social media. Tell us what you're up to to continue the mission. Use the hashtag alwaysonmission and tag us. Our handle is RCAB underscore evangelize. We want to hear from you. And we have some exciting news, Tom. We had initially started this podcast just to bring some folks some joy during the Easter season, but we will be extending the podcast for a bit. That's right. We got the news that we're going to be able to uh, launch the podcast through Monday, June 29th, the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul. Speaking of saints, who's our saint for today, Tom? Today, I thought we'd speak about St. John Bosco, the famous Don Bosco, as he is uh, so commonly known. So Don Bosco is a 19th century Italian saint, and he was born in 1815 in Castelnuovo d'Asti in the Piemonte region of northwestern Italy, kind of on the French side of the country, and lived until 1888. Uh, he, was, he was born poor. Uh, died, his father died rather when he was only two years old. And so he spent his youth as a shepherd boy, and his first teacher was the local parish priest. And so he, he began to catch the bug both for learning and for the faith from his local parish priest. And just to kind of recall for a moment the history uh, of that particular time, these are the years just after the uh, vicious Napoleonic suppressions of the church. 
across Europe, across the parts of Europe that Napoleon dominated. Uh, and so it was very much a time of rebuilding in the life of the church. A lot of the structures, the religious communities, the properties that the church had had prior to that had been lost or really compromised. And so uh, he came of age in the very time when this kind of great rebirth of the church was happening. And uh, he's one of a number of holy men and women who rose up in 19th century Piemonte. So Tom, can you tell us about Don Bosco's vocation? He actually experienced a vision at the age of nine. And he had a prophetic dream in which a number of unruly young boys were uttering words of blasphemy. And Jesus Christ and the Virgin Mary appeared to him in the dream, saying he would bring such youths to God through the virtues of humility and charity. Wow, that's powerful. Yes, and this stuck with him for a long time. And eventually, this would assist him in discerning the call to diocesan priesthood. And so he sought to follow that advice, though, uh, that he received in the dream, even as a boy. And he would entertain his peers with juggling and acrobatics and magic tricks before explaining a sermon he had heard in church or leading them in praying the rosary. So he would kind of have some sort of a lighthearted, entertaining lead-in to evangelization, which is perfect. It's the perfect... Effective strategy. It's a very effective strategy. It's never lost its effectiveness, you know? Uh, but... You know, it wasn't easy for, uh, for John. His older brother opposed his plan to become a priest, so much so that, that he left home to, uh, to work on a farm at the age of 12. And he stayed away for three years. But eventually, he worked in various trades and finished school in order to attend seminary. Now, remember, in those days, you know, going to seminary was not, not that going to seminary is simple now, but in those days, you really had to pay your own way and you had to pay for your own education, which was something that not every family could afford to do in the days before there would have been much compulsory education in many countries. Uh, so it was generally understood to be a great sacrifice, um, not just personally and spiritually, but also financially. So he made it to seminary uh, and he was ordained in 1841. And uh, he was assigned in the city of Torino, which is the major city in northwest Italy, Turin. But the Turin of the day was not uh, probably quite the place it is now that, you know, hosted the Olympics in 2006. Uh, this was a place uh, very much in the throes of the Industrial Revolution. And there, as here and as in England and in so many uh, major cities of Europe, the, the, the growth of factories had fueled, rather, kind of a movement of a lot of people to the cities for these jobs. But then there really wasn't enough industrial work in most of these places to fill the need for a rapidly growing population uh, that was leaving farm life in many cases. Uh, and so what he discovered is that there were many young boys that were ending up in prison, orphans, ending up in prison before the age of 18. This was, this was shocking to him. I mean, no doubt, having come from kind of a, a small town agricultural life, he wouldn't have faced quite the same hard knocks realities of, of urban poverty that he ran smack into in 1841 in Torino. That must have been so hard to see. So tell us a little bit about the beginning of his apostolate. Yes. And so on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, 1841, first year of his priesthood, he was vesting for Mass. He heard some commotion and the sacristan was 
throwing uh, a kid out of church. Uh, the, the poor kid refused to serve mass. Uh, and so the sacristan was throwing him out of church. Don Bosco heard this and he went out and he brought the boy back in and developed a friendship with this young man. And this began, this relationship with this boy, this kind of mentoring relationship was the beginning of what became his oratory. Um, and that young man's name was Bartolomeo Garelli, just one, one boy among hundreds. But Don Bosco began instructing his first pupil, this young boy, Bartolomeo. And soon Bartolomeo began to invite other friends to join them. And they were all drawn by a kindness that they found in Don Bosco. You know, Don is the, the customary way of addressing the parish priest and when the last name Don Bosco. And so they, they found this kindness that they had never known in any other context. And by just a few months later, there were 20 boys coming to his little groups in this oratory. And a year later, uh, or a month later, he had 30. And then by four years later, 400. You know, so he had really attracted quite a crowd using this method that he had been practicing since childhood, you know? That's so exciting. It might be helpful for our listeners to realize and recognize, though, that there were some challenges. So we need to have great perseverance as we begin various ministries. So talk a little bit about the challenges that came before the success. Absolutely. The, the, uh, he had some, some rough times. So the, the community, this oratory that he had begun, people were uh, charging it with being a nuisance, basically because of the types of boys that it was getting together. This is, this is a rough crowd. And, and Don Bosco had no fear of them and their uncouthness, their rudeness, their lack of education. He sort of saw the, the diamonds in the rough that they were and took it on, onto himself to, to kind of help slowly, gently shave off those rough edges and refine them uh, into the, the fine young men that they could be and that he saw that they could be. Uh, so anyway, they were charged with being a nuisance. You know, like we, we don't want these kids around the neighborhood. They're, you know, loud and all this sort of thing. Many obstacles arose that threatened to end his whole effort. They had difficulty finding spaces where they could meet. Does this sound familiar? Anybody in the audience said, do we sometimes not have enough space on the parish campus to meet? Well, so did Don Bosco. I've heard had the that same before. Problem. Yeah, absolutely. Not a new problem. At one point, this is actually, it, it's sad and it's funny. Um, he had so many obstacles thrown before him that many people couldn't believe that he wouldn't just give up the entire effort. And they began to take his perseverance in trying to make this work as a sign of insanity. And so people tried to have him committed to an asylum because he was so, he was so committed to the mission. Can you imagine that? Being so committed to the mission uh, of Christ, to, to these you know, kids in need, that people wanted to institutionalize you. So this was, talk about a challenge, you know. Um, That's horrible. Finally, he was able to draw into his assistance his, his, his own mother, his own mother in her older age, um, stepped forward to assist in whatever she had. She sold a little house, a few possessions she had, and this be- became some financial support for them. Then they began and they built a church. They, he, he opened a technical school and a workshop. Um, you may remember, I don't know if you remember, Rosemary, there used to be a Don Bosco Tech in Boston. I think I do. There used to be, you probably, you may have known some kids who 
graduated from there in the, up until the 90s. I think it closed in the 90s. And um, uh, that was located kind of in the Chinatown South End border in that area downtown. Uh, but he had, uh, by this time, 50 priests and teachers assisting him. And they decided to organize themselves under a common rule and establish a form of religious life, the Oratory of St. Francis de Sales, uh, which was approved by the Holy See in 1874. So how would you describe the spirit of the Oratory? Well, you know, um, one thing, like I mentioned, that Don Bosco was able to kind of see beyond the rough edges. He never failed to see under the dirt, the rags, and the, the uncouth behavior of these boys what one writer describes as the spark which a little kindness and encouragement would fan into a flame. So he had the ability to see that spark hidden beneath a pretty messy exterior, um, you know, kind of riddled with poverty and, and um, the bad experiences of this life. And so that, that dream that we mentioned before, the voice that spoke to him said that not with blows, but with charity and gentleness, you must draw these friends to the path of virtue, not with blows, but with charity. And so this is kind of a famous aspect of uh, Don Bosco's or the Salesian spirituality, that it is not one of uh, duress or uh, physical punishments. You know, it was one of really uh, loving and, and gentleness, but also firmness. I mean, the, the, you know, Don Bosco was no uh, pushover here, but he wasn't also going to give a physical beating to a boy who probably had had enough of those as it was. Uh, one of my favorite things reading about him is uh, the Sunday walks that he would take the kids on. So, yeah, those sound awesome. I'd love to hear more about. Those. I know it makes me it makes me wish I could just join him and 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 take a walk in the Italian countryside right now. Uh, and so he would on a Sunday he would celebrate mass in the local village church, give his homily, uh, and after that they'd have some breakfast followed by games. Uh, and in the afternoon they would chant vespers, a lesson in the catechism would be given, and they would recite the rosary together. And here's my favorite image: it was a familiar sight to see him in a field surrounded by kneeling boys preparing for confession. Isn't that something? And, and that was another one of his spiritual pillars that he wrote in his rules that frequent confession, frequent communion and daily mass, these are the pillars which should sustain the whole edifice of education. And you know, this I think is an important thing to think about when we talk to our guests later on, Paula O'Day, principal at St. Augustine School, making the spiritual life, the prayer life, the foundation of all other things. And we'll hear a little bit later on how she does that uh, here in uh, Massachusetts in 2020. Yeah, Tom, Paula does a great job of having spirituality and a Christ-centered focus be a pillar for everything else that's done in the school setting. How would you describe Don Bosco's approach to education in general? Well, his, his object, uh, he believed the object was to form the will and temper the character. And so in all of his students, he tried to do a number of things that would bring this about. But one of, his, one of the foremost things he would do was cult help them cultivate a taste for music, uh, believing it to be a powerful and refining influence. And I can say I've actually witnessed this. I once had the, the privilege to stay in a Salesian school in the city of Naples, Italy, um, it was a cheap place to stay. They had some rooms available in the summer. It was like 20, 
euro a night, maybe, maybe. That's you know, amazing. Uh, yeah, but it was worth 20 euro a night. <laughs> but the, the, coo- the cooler experience of it um, was that as I was walking through the plaza, there was like a soccer field behind the school. It was right in the middle of the city, you know, the highways going by right up above, not a trendy location at all, but they were serving the poorest of the poor. And so I was walking through the kind of the plaza behind the school. And in an open door, I saw uh, like a young adult man surrounded by um, a bunch of young people sitting on chairs, all with guitars. He was teaching them to play the guitar. And uh, so still to this day, you know, music has a transformative effect on you know, difficult lives like that, uh, just as it does for us all. He said that knowledge never makes a man because it does not directly touch the heart. He says it gives more power in the exercise of good or evil, but alone, it's an indifferent weapon wanting guidance. And so you can see here the need for the spiritual life to be that guidance, you know, to, to invite the Holy Spirit in to uh, assist that soul. It's not enough to be smart or to be proficient. You know, we've seen many, um, you know, evil geniuses, so to speak, around in, in, in world history that, you know, they, they were pretty sophisticated and smart, but lacked that guidance and did great damage. But he also had an interesting ability in his approach to um, identify the aptitudes, the vocations of his students, um, and kind of to be able to guide them. And that, that's a real gift to say, you know, this isn't my desire for, for you, but rather what, what did God give you? What are the gifts that you have that I can shine a light on, that I can help you see perhaps that no one else has identified for you. So that's kind of a gift that he had. That's so unique, but so critical for people to be able to live their fullest lives and become the people they are made out of love to be. So that is so beautiful. Talk to us a little bit about this astonishing fruits of, of his ministry. Yes. So, you know, the, uh, the oratory, as we uh, discussed earlier, was approved uh, came into existence about 1868. 20 years later, the time of Don Bosco's death, 1888, there were then 250 houses of the Salesian Society in all parts of the world. And they were serving by then 130,000 children, out of which every year came 18,000 finished apprentices. So that was another part of the school. Like I mentioned, Don Bosco Tech, they had a particular role in technical education, training people in trades that were like valuable for a living, you know, right away, you know, maybe these uh, weren't kids that were necessarily going to go on to, um, you know, MIT, but they could go on and earn a great living and be valued in any culture. You know, like you didn't, you know, a trade is a portable skill. It's one that can be used anywhere, anywhere you go pretty much. And that's what they were doing. He would select some of his brightest students and teach, teach them the languages, mathematics, and help form out of them a teaching core for the rather Salesian home. So it was kind of a self-sustaining ministry. By 1888, 6,000 priests had come out of his institutions and 1,200 of those remained as Salesian priests. So talk about extraordinary vocations in every way. That's great. And what, what is the spiritual foundation, would you say? Well, you know, as he mentioned in the rules, you know, frequent confession, frequent communion and daily mass. Um, those are the pillars which should sustain the whole edifice of education. And that is no less important today than it was then. You know, 
Uh, even uh, under the pandemic restric restrictions, we still can practice a life of self-examination and penance and make a daily uh, examination of conscience. We can uh, make the act of contrition on our own. We can take unto ourselves different penances or, or offer different sacrifices uh, or abstain from uh, this and that, nice things. Though we can't receive frequent communion, we can't receive communion at all right now, we can always still make a spiritual communion. And I can't um, underestimate, I don't want to underestimate at all the power of spiritual communion. Remember, this is an extraordinary thing that we can still offer our um, spiritual communion in union with an actual mass that is taking place, that is doing major spiritual good uh, for souls and for the world, whether we're there or not. So as long as we're united with the spirit, that's very powerful. And, and likewise, daily masses, we can either watch it online uh, or pray with the daily mass readings using one of the many uh, forms that we have available online or in print resources. Don Bosco's work was super essential and effective in its time and, and still today. What a great example Don Bosco is of persevering despite the initial challenges he faced, of really uplifting and calling out people's gifts and talents and moving them into a practical reality so that they might have great dignity and provide wonderful things for our society. So that was awesome, Tom. Can you lead us in a closing prayer? Absolutely. Why don't we just pray the, the collect of St. John Bosco from the Missal. His feast day is January 31st. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, who raised up the priest, St. John Bosco, as a father and teacher of the young, grant, we pray, that aflame with the same fire of love, we may seek out souls and serve you alone. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. St. John Bosco focused on serving the youth and rooting education in Christ with that spiritual pillar. Our next guest, Paula O'Day, does just the same in her leadership. Stay tuned for that conversation. to Always On Mission, Evangelizing in Challenging Times. Tom and I are joined by Paula O'Day, Principal of St. Augustine School in Andover, Massachusetts. Welcome, Paula. Thank you. Nice to be with you. First of all, I'm sure this is not how you expected your last year as a principal before retiring to look. Absolutely not. <laughs> I could even imagine this. Yeah. But let's take a step back first. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your family, your career in education. Okay. So let's, let's go way back, I guess. So I was born and grew up in Methuen, Massachusetts. I attended Our Lady of Mount Carmel Elementary School from first grade to eighth grade. From there, I went on to St. Mary's High School in Lawrence for four years and graduated from there. And then I moved on to UMass Lowell to get my elementary degree and my sociology degree from there. 
And as soon as I graduated from UMass Lowell, I was lucky enough to get a job at St. Augustine's in Andover, and I have been there ever since. So 42 years later, I'm still there. Um, I started as a fifth grade teacher, which was really great. It was like my first teaching job ever, and I, I know I was really nervous at the beginning. I, I really wanted second grade, but I took the fifth grade, and I taught ma I'm only, uh, mainly math and science, and then I later on I got married. I, my husband Michael. We have three grown daughters now, two of whom are teachers, which is awesome, and one's a nurse. But um, so after we had them, they attended St. Augustine School, which was a lot of fun to able to go to school together and work together every day and share in a lot of the same things of our faith community. When they were a little bit older, I decided to go back to Marymount College to get my master's degree in education. And so from then I moved on to sixth grade at St. Augustine's. And then about 14 years ago, I was asked to be the assistant principal. So I did that for five years. And the last nine years, I've been the principal at St. Augustine's. So that's kind of it all in a nutshell, I guess. What a great story, Paula. Tell us a little bit about St. Augustine's school. Okay, so St. Augustine's was founded in 1914 by the Sisters of Notre Dame and the Augustinian Friars. And it was actually in a, in a house on Central Street. And then in 1917, they actually made the original building that St. Augustine's that was still housed in today. Um, so that was 106 years ago. We celebrated our 100th anniversary six years ago by building a new gymnasium, which was named after one of our first graduates. So that was the James D. Doherty, or J Jim's Jim, as a uh, pastor likes to call it. So that was six years ago, and we also opened up a, well, not opened up, we had a preschool, and we moved the preschool from the cellar of the church to a brand new building behind our school. So we went from one building to three buildings over the last six years. St. Augustine's, had, we have about 375 students currently, and they come from 20 different communities from southern New Hampshire all the way down to Reading and Wilmington, Massachusetts. And a few years ago, we started a full inclusion program for students with special um, needs. We have our, um, our first student was going to be an eighth grader in September. And Abby is her name. And Abby is a student that has Down syndrome. And so we opened our doors to her when she was a kindergartner. And we have been ecstatic ever since. She has changed our lives immensely. I think if you asked her parents, they said that we've changed theirs. But I think the opposite is true. She has opened up our school to what we really should be to be doing is letting all God's children in and coming in and being educated and learning about Jesus and all the wonderful faith things that we have to share. That's extraordinary, Paula. Can you tell us a little bit about how you adapted at St. Augustine's when the pandemic hit? Well, that was that that's <laughs> it's kind of crazy when we think back to that. I, I remember I, I, so on that Thursday, things were getting a little bit. Um, crazy around, as, as we all know. And so when we came to school on Friday morning, about 10.30, I, I called an emergency staff meeting. And so I had as many teachers that could get coverage for their class come down to my office. And I just pretty much presented to them what I knew that at that point, the archdiocese hadn't closed the schools and neither had the governor, but we kind of figured it was coming. So I said, you know, take, take today, get anything that you need to bring home with you. I think we're going to be remotely learning for the next, I think it was two weeks at the time. So I said, we're going to be remotely learning for a couple of weeks, do the best you can. Our teachers at that point were already on Google Classroom. 
Um, no one had done Zoom though, but a lot of Google Classroom was going on and Google Hangout and some of the youngest students were doing class dojo. So that that's kind of where we began. And we literally, we went home that later on that afternoon, we got announced that everything was going to be closed. So we, I kind of just said, well, I'll see you Monday morning. We'll do a Monday. We, yeah, we gather for prayer every day in our schoolyard. So from 8.45 to 9, we do our prayer, our pledge, our mission statement, any of the announcements. The students actually lead prayer. So, we, you know, each grade has a different day to lead prayer. I said, we need to continue this because this is what we're all about. We can't just walk away from this. So we had a parent that luckily works for Zoom and she got us the large free account. And we just started Monday morning at 8.45 and it was it was a very interesting experience. The first time I was using my um, Chromebook and I was like a robot. My voice was awful. Uh, you know, the, I'm surprised anybody stayed in attendance. It wasn't great. And then by Wednesday of that week, it was like, like we're doing right now. It was, it was fabulous. And so we have about 170 visitors every morning for prayer. And that's teachers and parents and students. Some of them are in their beds. Some of them are at their kitchen tables, having their morning breakfast. And, and we join in prayer and we begin our day like we always do. And the teachers have been fabulous. I couldn't ask for a better group of teachers to work with and to lead during this time. They haven't missed a beat. They have been, they, they do classes as if they're in, in the building. They get up and as soon as I'm offline at nine o'clock, they start and they'll, they teach three or four classes a day on Zoom for the middle school students. And, you know, they, the younger students, they, they meet once in the morning and once in the afternoon. So they cover their, their, their religion and their math in their reading classes. And then they'll do social studies and science a couple times a week. So, so we've been doing that all along and our parents have been thrilled. They, they have commented so many times that we are ahead of the area public school where, where we live and it's just, it just worked. And like I said, the, the teachers are working probably hotter than they would in the building because they have, you know, their regular classrooms, they have office hours where they can meet the parents one-on-one -on -one and discuss where their students are. And they've kind of done a lot of small group instruction. So if they normally have 20 students in their classroom, they t sometimes break that down into three smaller groups of six or seven. So they can really, you know, converse and, you know, discuss the books they're, they're reading or things like that. So it's, it's been awesome. Paula, I'm so impressed by how nimbly you've moved to a virtual classroom and continued the great learning that's taking place for your students, but also the focus on evangelization and mission has continued. So you mentioned the wonderful daily prayer that takes place. Could you talk to us also about some of the other wonderful things like the letters that the students are writing? Speak to some of the other ways that you continue to live out the mission. Okay, that's great. So at the very beginning, we had a parent reach out and she is a nurse at a, um, a nursing home. And it's one of the uh, many nursing homes in Massachusetts. And she had asked if there was some way that we could, with social distancing, make cards for these people who can't get any visitors and they can't go out at all. So we just kind of opened it up one morning at prayer and we said, you know, we're going to have a big box outside the school. Anytime over the weekend, if you could drop off a card to some of these people, you know, send them, wish them well, tell them you're thinking and praying for them. And we were, we were hoping to get probably one per student. So she, cause she told us it was probably about 500 um, inbound patients. 
Well, but at the end of the day, we had a couple thousand letters. This, the students, they spent the weekend I, making all these cards and, you know, reaching out and just spreading the good news, like telling people that God loves you. We're sorry you can't get out and see your families. And it was just a fabulous outpouring. And I was, didn't expect anything less. This is what our um, whole school community and parish community is really known for, is their outreach. So we, we did that. We also um, did a Tedebrae um, prayer service for the Easter Triduum, which was awesome. We had a music teacher. He sang and played his guitar to some musics and music. And then a few of the teachers and I read different prayer services. And we did that through Zoom. And all our families joined with a candle lit. And then at the end, we all sang a song together and blew out our candles one at a time. And it was, I kept it. And it's going to be one of those things that's going to go down in my uh, memory book. But it was absolutely beautiful. And at this time, we have our, usually this time of year, our eighth graders and their kindergarten buddies do a crowning of Mary. And, you know, they haven't been able to do that because they have, haven't been able to get together. So our eighth graders were really asking their eighth grade teachers, they really want to do this. How can we possibly do this? So when, um, Thursday at morning prayer, they've put together, one of the students has a statue of Mary. So she's going to be outside crowning it. And three or four of the other eighth graders are going to take part and do some of the readings and sing, singing of um, the songs about crowning Mary. So we're, we're excited that that's going to be happening this week. One of the other things we did was last Friday, we had a um, food collection for Lazarus House. Lazarus House is one of the, um, the places in Lawrence that we support throughout the year by, you know, doing collecting canned goods or going over and sorting um, breads and foods for them. So our families wanted to continue that. So we had a social distancing food drive where some people put things out on their steps and some of our parents drove around and collected. Other people dropped them off at school. So we collected over 30 large boxes of food and we sent that off to Lazarus House on Friday afternoon. So those are the things we, we, what we, we used to doing and we, we've managed to keep on doing them. One of our families, um, one of our teachers and her family continued our tradition of making Easter baskets for the children who live at Lazarus House during this time. So she knew she couldn't get all kids to make it. So she kind of made them herself with her children and went over and delivered them. So that was a nice, a nice way to keep up some of the traditions that we've been working on. That's so awesome. I'm so impressed that rooted in prayer and in service, you've maintained a really strong sense of community, even during this time of isolation and separation. Yes, I, I am too. And, and I knew it would happen because this is, this is how they, they work. They love service. We, we started a few years ago in Augie's Give Back Day, where the first week of school, we send all the kids out into the streets, in the, either working down at the area food bank or the... the um, homeless shelters or they're working with um, adults who have um, disabilities. Uh, they work at the church, they clean the church, they clean the cemetery, they make things for the seniors. And it's just become part of what we do. And then we take all those service sites and those are the service sites that we service once a month through our school year. So it's, it's one, of the, one of the things that we really hold um, close to our heart at St. Augustine's. Paula, can you tell us how this time of the pandemic has affected your own faith? Oh boy, just just not being able to gather, gather with the school community that I've been a part of for 42 years, gather at our parish on the weekends. Those things were so hard at first. I, I know everybody has gone through their moments during this pandemic where they, they really question what's happening and how are we going to get through this and all. I think that was the, the thing that hit 
myself and my family the most is that that's been such a part of our lives forever is just gathering as a school community and a parish community that it took a little while to get used to. Oh, well, you know what? On Sundays, I can listen to Cardinal Sean say Mass, or I can go over to the Vatican and enjoy Mass over there. And so it's kind of been a, an interesting little journey, I guess, of how we can spread our wings out a little further from our own community and, and enjoy our, our larger community of faith. So, so that's been kind of, that was the most trying thing for me, but it's kind of turned out to be a, a nice, interesting way of changing our usual way of, you know, gathering. Um, but I still try to connect with the mission of the church and do evangelization as much as we can. And, and that's why I've really kept with um, I was talking to some other principals and they're like, what do you mean you meet with your school every morning? And I'm like, we have to, that's what we do. You know, I was like, it's just part of what we do and what we get used to. And, and I think that's been a real help for me to still see those faces every morning. Paula, what a joy this has been. And I'm really impressed and proud of the great work you've done to lead this community through the pandemic, stay rooted in Christ and continue to learn and grow and serve others. I think you should be really proud that this is the capstone to your great career. And thank you for your service to the church and to the school. We want to close by asking you the question that we ask all of our guests. What does it mean to you, Paula, to be always on mission? And how might you encourage other people to evangelize in whatever way they might be called to do, even in challenging times? Okay. Um, when I think about always on a mission, I guess to me, it means just always doing what's right and what we're, we're called to do. And that's spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, no matter where we are, whether we're, we're locked at home during a pandemic or, you know, at school every day with shining faces who are just dying to hear stories about Christ and, you know, how Christ is, takes part in all our lives. I think I just need to continue that and keep modeling about what, what Christ means to me and how Christ can, can be to everyone else. And I feel during this time that the students, the staff, the families, I guess they need me to do what I've been trained to do more now than ever before. And, and that's to lead them and walk the faith with them. And whether that's leading the school community, being empathetic to what's happening to some of our own families or the world around us with you know nurses and doctors and, 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 and people losing their lives during this pandemic, being compassionate, listening, being encouraging, and continually doing what I can do to live out the church's mission, even if I'm locked inside my own home. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Paula. Tom, could you lead us in a closing prayer? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we give you thanks for the many blessings that you've bestowed upon Paula and the St. Augustine School community in keeping alive the fire of faith in the hearts of their faculty, students, and families. We ask you to bless them in all of their efforts and to persevere through the end of this pandemic with the grace that only you can give through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you everyone for listening. I hope you're encouraged by hearing Paula's story of great leadership in the mission so that you can step up and respond to your own call to evangelize. Share with us what you're doing on social media. Use the hashtag alwaysonmission. Be sure to subscribe and we look forward to being with you next week on Always On Mission, Evangelizing in Challenging Times. God bless. <laughs>